Well, I thought maybe I would start out by asking, why are we here this morning? And maybe we can answer now a little more fullness, even a little more joy than we could a couple months ago. We're here to hear the word of the Lord to us and to respond to that word by calling upon his name. And so there is at no point in this time this morning, there is no point where we are not engaged in that, in that dialogue between God speaking authoritatively to us through his word and us listening and then responding to him. And so I always, I always think about, you know, when we say, you can be seated. Um, there's something in, in me that when I hear the you can be seated thing, I was like, oh, okay, I can be seated and, and sit and wait and, and, and kind of relax a bit. And uh, so partly it's like, oh, we should maybe stand the whole service as, as an indication of our, of our diligence in this. So, so you can be seated doesn't mean uh, you're done with your part, right? Um, not at all. So we're uh, coming this morning to uh, actually John chapter 16 in the, in the end. But before, before we start, let's just introduce this with, um, we started last week with a question. And, and the question was this, Jesus, he has chosen and appointed these 11 disciples to go and bear much fruit, right? Lots and lots and lots of fruit. And fruit that's going to remain and abide forever and ever and ever. That all sounds good. So does that mean that the disciples um, can look forward to being embraced by the world and welcomed by the world? God says, I'm sending you into the world to bear tons of fruit. I'm sending you in the world to bear fruit that will last forever. Can they expect to be welcomed then by the world into which he sends them? And Jesus answered that question last week, we saw in verses 18 and 19. He says to his disciples and he says to you, This is what he says to us. If the world hates you, and remember we saw that if doesn't mean it might, it might not. The world will hate you. Yes, it will, but know this. It hated me. It has hated me, first of all, with respect to you. You don't get the honors of being hated the most. Jesus does. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but... Here's why the world hates you. This is good news. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. On account of this, the world hates you. All right, so we probably think of the world. What's the world? What's the kind of people that belong to the world? Well, I went through my mind, my list of what I would first think of, right? Pagans, world, secularists. Adherence to false religions, cults, atheists, I'll put them in the category of world, in my mind, agnostics, or just your everyday pleasure-seeking hedonists that live all around us, right? But now what Jesus does is he, he narrows his focus to a part of the world that we might not have expected. So in verses 18 and 19, and I just want to say this, this gets a little technical for a moment, but you don't have to worry about remembering it. I just want you to see it, and you'll feel it when you read the passage. In verses 18 and 19, the verses I just read, Jesus uses verb forms. 
that are very suited to universal, general, timeless, big principles. Okay, so there's the timeless presence, and there's the perfects, and there's the imperfects. Now, in here in, in English, we're comfortable with present and past and future. We like those. Okay, but in Greek, there's all sorts of them, and perfect and imperfect and timeless presence, which we have too, um, are a big deal. We saw that here in those verses. Also, Jesus refers to the world six times. So I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to emphasize some of that so you can see the contrast with what comes next. If the world hates you, in other words, that's a timeless present. If the world is hating you, nebulous kind of all the time, all right, know that it has hated me. That's perfect with continuing results, always. First of all, with respect to you. If you were of the world imperfect, the world would love imperfect its own. But because you are not of the world, a timeless present, but I chose you. Now there's a past tense. That gets finally a little bit precise, right? Now all of a sudden I say, oh, uh, history. God, Jesus says, I chose you at a particular point in time out of the world um, On account of this, the world hates or is hating you. Now, we come to verse 20, and all of a sudden, and you can even see this in the English, Jesus switches really suddenly to a bunch of verb forms, pasts and futures, that are suited to saying, hey, now I'm not just talking about general, always universal truths. I'm talking about something that happened, something that will happen, specifically on dates in history. Not only that, but Jesus stops using the word world. He just said the world, the world, the world, the world, the world, the world, six times. Now he's, he drops it, and he just says they. All right? So listen to it now. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted a simple aorist past, if they persecuted me, they will also, in the future, persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So if you just read your English translations, you read the first two verses, then you read that, and you're like, oh, that's different. Something's different. Flavor's changed. Right? So we ask this question, who are, what's, what's it in your handout? Who are they? Well, it's the world. We know it's the world. But wait a minute. This is a little bit more particular. Uh, when did they persecute Jesus? Because it's a, it's, a, it's a historical past. And when will these disciples be persecuted by the ones who persecuted Jesus? So those are our questions now. We're, we're transitioning. So Jesus continues in verse 21. But all these things, they will do to you for my name's sake. Here's why. Because they do not know, there's a perfect, the one who sent me. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. And follow this. It's this simple. If, if the world truly knew God, then how could they fail to recognize Jesus? I mean, if you know God... Then when Jesus comes, you'll say, oh, 
Son of God. You'll see and receive Jesus because you know God. You know the revelation of God. If you knew God, you'll know the revelation of God when he comes to make God known more fully to us. But here's the thing. Of course the world doesn't know the one who sent Jesus. The world is the world, right? So why does Jesus go to the effort of explaining? Because they do not know the one who sent me. Why does he explain that? And the reason is because they, any guesses on this one? They claim, or whatever your word was probably works too, they claim the opposite. They claim to have an intimate, and let's, let's wrestle with this, brothers and sisters, because this is difficult. They claim to have an intimate, privileged knowledge of God, of the one who sent Jesus. And that's why they say they know that Jesus is not from God because they know God and therefore they know God did not send Jesus. So who is the world in these verses? Do we know? It's the Jews. The world is the Jews. Now more specifically, the world is the children of Abraham who were zealous for the scriptures Same scriptures we have in our Bibles here. But not according to knowledge, Paul will say, who were waiting for the promised Messiah. That's what what Paul said. I just read this morning in Acts where Paul was defending himself to um, uh, Felix. And he said, I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection, which these brothers all believe in. And for the Messiah that they're all waiting for. Right? So they were all waiting for this promised Messiah. Who's the world here in these verses? So kind of like we're, we're good with being hated by the people who are the real world. I mean, we expect that. But what happens when the world is not the pagans, it's not the secularists, it's not the adherents of false religions or cults or the atheists or agnostics or your everyday pleasure-seeking hedonists. That's not the world we're talking about. It's serious, serious, professing believers who claim to know and serve the one who sent Jesus. But it will prove they don't by killing Jesus and then killing and persecuting those who are Jesus' disciples. Let's just jump ahead for a moment to chapter 16, verse 2. Jesus says in chapter 16, verse 2, they will put you out of, that's a future, out of the synagogue. Now, how many of you, when you see, oh, they'll put you out of the synagogue, we're like, oh, man, oh, that'd be terrible. Or do we kind of read that and think, I don't really care. Kicked out of the synagogue. What's the big deal? Right? We can tend to think of the synagogue as this old covenant Jewish thing that, hey, if you're a, Jew, a true Christian Jew, you've, you've abandoned the synagogue a long time ago. As soon as you became a Christian, you said goodbye to the synagogue. But, but that's not the case. That is totally wrong. Jesus assumes not that his disciples will leave the synagogue of their own accord. Jesus knows they're not going to leave the synagogue of their own accord. He rather, and, and there was no good theological reason for them to do so. But rather that they would be forcefully put out. He's saying they're going to force you out of the synagogue. 
Here's the thing, the synagogue should have become naturally the church. And in a sense, the synagogue, the true synagogue, did become the church. The church was patterned after the synagogue in terms of its worship and its service in many ways, the church services. So it was only when the Jewish people continued in unbelief and said they wouldn't listen to the apostles that the synagogue became pitted against the church. But it should have been the synagogue becomes the church. That's what it should have been. So what, if you can put yourself back into the world of Jesus and these disciples, what happened at the beginning of the church is the disciples, the disciples were expelled from the one place they would have most longed to be and the one place they most had a right to be. That's hard. That's hard. The synagogue was the place, think about it, where these disciples had gathered all of their life to worship God. And now they're not welcome at the synagogue precisely because of their love for God and their joy in the coming of the Messiah. Are you in their shoes? Does, do you see and feel how unsettling that would be? How, how wrong that would feel? How you might even begin to question yourself and wonder, what, what, where have I got this wrong? Because I'm being kicked out of the synagogue. You can imagine how demoralizing that would be. And yet that's just not even the worst of it. Because Jesus continues, they will put you out of the synagogue. But indeed, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Now, when, when the Christians start killing me, as it were, I begin to wonder, in my flesh, am I a Christian? What's going on here? The world is turned inside out and upside down. And Jesus says, I, I need to tell you of this ahead of time. And we might think, how can this be? What? Really? They're off, they think they're killing you to offer service to God? Well, who's the prime example of that? Wouldn't that be Apostle Paul? So look at Acts chapter 26. I thought to myself, Paul's just telling us the truth here. Still a bad guy, but he's telling us the truth. I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them, and as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, even to foreign Cities. Now we read that and we're kind of like, oh, this is such a great story because I know Paul is going to be converted and it's going to be an amazing story. But, but wait a minute. What about all the people who got killed because of Paul? What about all the families ripped apart by, by parents being carted off to jail because of Paul? All because he, he was so zealous for the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Paul says in Galatians 1, You have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism. And, and that, we have to understand, Judaism was not, we think of it as like a false religion. Well, it's not quite so simple. These were, Paul was 
Judaism was where the true believers were for, for hundreds of years. So he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries among his countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. So it's partly because of his own experience, Paul can write in his letter to the Romans. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Jews is for their salvation, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Uh, I, I mean, we're uncomfortable with that, aren't we? Paul, don't even tell me they have a zeal for God. They don't really have a zeal for God. But Paul says, no, they have a zeal for God. It's not according to knowledge, which is going to send them to hell. Paul says of himself, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. And he was all those things, all motivated by, an, he calls it an ignorant zeal for God. So brothers and sisters, it's one thing to be persecuted by people who I think should be persecuting me. By people who don't claim to love God and don't pretend to love God, maybe even who admit their hatred of God. Okay, you can persecute me. You have a right to persecute me because that's who you are. It's another thing to be persecuted and even put to death by those who sincerely claim to be serving and worshiping the same God I claim to be serving and worshiping. Now we have to just face the reality that that can happen. And can we imagine then how that might cause us to question and doubt, to be unsettled at the least, perhaps even to fall away from the faith? That's the question I ask in your handout, and I'll skip ahead for those on the PowerPoint. In such circumstances, how are the disciples to be kept from stumbling and falling away? So Jesus continues in verse 22. If I had not come, okay, specific event in history, and spoken, specific moments in history, to them, the Jews, they would not have sin. But now they have no cover for their sin. Obviously, Jesus isn't saying they would have been sinless, right? We know that. So what he's saying is that It's like this, if he himself had not come, actually come, out of heaven, and spoken to them, they couldn't be held accountable for personally rejecting him. But that's what's happened, right? They still would have been guilty sinners on their way to hell. They still would have been guilty sinners. But that ultimate guilt, that guilt that is above all other of rejecting the good news of God's salvation in Jesus the Messiah as it was proclaimed to them by Jesus himself. Think about it. I mean, if you lived in that day and Jesus spoke to you and told you, I am the one sent from the Father. He performed his miracles. He spoke to you the gospel. And you reject that Jesus. There's no greater guilt that could ever be imputed to you. And now, says Jesus, now that I have come and spoken to them, now they have no cover for their sin. We could put it like this. Their cover has been blown. Right? 
the cover was blown. Now, all of our modern translations say now they have no excuse for their sin. I, I, I just think that's just flat out not a good one. Everywhere else in the New Testament, you find that word. It always has the meaning of doing something out of pretense. Even sincerely, but it's still a pretense. You know, we're like that. We deceive ourselves, right? So we do things out of pretense, but we do it sincerely. We do things as a pretext to cover up what's really inside, but we do it sincerely. We don't even know we're doing it, but it's all a pretense, all a pretext, all a show. So the King James Version gets this right when it says, Now they have no cloak for their sin. Here's here's what Jesus is saying. Before, the Jews could hide their sin under the cover of their religious zeal and piety. So there's a lot of believers in Israel probably thought the Jews were all right. Look, they're serving the same God I am. They're following after God. So they hid their sin under their religious zeal and piety. But now that the Messiah himself has come and spoken to them, and now that they've rejected Jesus and his word, their cover is blown. Right? It's stripped away and they're exposed for who they really are. Therefore, Jesus says, okay, don't be surprised when you're persecuted by the very people who claim to know and serve God because you know what? All along, those claims to know and serve God were just the cloak for their sin. All along. Okay. Maybe I can begin to deal with it when those who claim to know God persecute and want to put me to death. It should be a sobering thought, brothers and sisters, because even for us, it's possible to use our profession of Christianity, and I would suggest probably that most of us here profess Christianity. It's possible to use that as a pretext so that we might outwardly appear good and upright in the circles that we walk in. And by the way, appear good and upright even to ourselves, so that I appear good and upright to me. Maybe even pious and holy, even to myself. And yet, of course, inwardly still be full of wickedness and uncleanness. And yet, the irony is that the very cover that I'm using for my sin, the very cloak that I'm putting over the filthiness that remains is the very thing that in the end will expose me and condemn me. So I use Christianity to cover the sin and to appear good and upright, and yet at the end, in the end, it's that same Christianity that will expose and condemn me. And so let us always test and examine ourselves. Not in the sense of paranoia, but in the sense of actually gratefulness and joy. Let us test and examine ourselves to see if we're really in the faith. And then let us always rejoice that we are. Right? Yeah, we ought to get around to rejoicing that we're not pretending. We ought to get around to rejoicing that we're not just, our Christianity is not just a pretext for an outward show to appear righteous to others and even to ourselves. But if that's a sobering thought for our own self-examination, it's also sobering in terms of what it means for being hated and persecuted by apparently sincere and zealous Christians. There are many people today whose profession of Christianity, and, and I'm, not, I, I, I'm not naming names, I don't know the names, I just know that this is the fact. Okay? 
There are, I suppose I, we could know some probably names based on the outward evidence. But there are many professors of Christianity whose profession is a pretext so that outwardly they appear good and upright, pious and holy, even to themselves, but inwardly they're still full of sin. And so when we're hated and attacked by those sincere and zealous Christians, we shouldn't be surprised. Don't doubt your faith. Don't suppose that the true gospel might be something other than what you always thought it was or what the Bible says it is. Instead, we must see in your handout that the cloak that's being used by our opponents is the very thing that exposes and accuses them. That's pretty important. And that will ultimately condemn them apart from repentance. I certainly think in particular of the woke Christianity that accuses us of being still asleep, slumbering and and unenlightened and insensible. I think of the proponents, and we've preached on this in the past, but the proponents of critical race and social justice gospel. And I'm not saying that everyone who says anything about critical race or says anything positively about it is not a Christian. I'm talking about though this this this. I'm talking about this reality that this forms of Christianity is is at the end of the day against true Christianity, the true gospel. Now there's. There's areas in the middle that God only knows people's hearts. It's not our place to do all the, on the, that judging. But the proponents of the critical race and social justice gospel who accuse us of being basically unrepentant haters and oppressors or complicit, complicit in it. I think of the ecumenical Christianity that accuses us of being arrogant and narrow-minded. I think of the liberal Christianity that accuses us of being obscurantist, of, of living in the past and not willing to see our advancements in the understanding of Scripture because we've come to more enlightened and advanced understandings of Scripture. I think in particular of how on social media uh, many sincere and zealous Christians, our professors of Christianity, are using social media as a platform in the end for persecution, all out of an apparent zeal for God. We know that much of the professing church, now I'm going to come to both sides, but in different ways. We know that much of the professing church is largely aligned with the political left. What I mean by that, this is really important. Sometimes I despair of ever communicating anything clearly on a Sunday morning. But So work hard with me here. What I mean by that is not just that much of the professing church leans politically left in terms of voting, but that it's theology, it's theology, and even the gospel itself has been and is still being reshaped. Okay? The professing church's theology 
and even the gospel it preaches is being reshaped by the values of the political left. So that now, basically, the political left may essentially be seen as an evangelistic or a missional arm of the church. So the policies, the, the, the machine, the organization, the political left becomes, as it were, a missional arm of the church because it's the values of that political left that's already reshaped and impacted the theology and gospel of that church. And so we have a, a union here that is deadly to the gospel. And, and brothers and sisters, what we need to understand is that it is this church that will more and more be the persecutors of Jesus' true disciples. Because this church, and I'm, I'm speaking broadly, I'm not naming a, a specific church or specific people, but this church that's allowing its gospel and theology to be reshaped by the values of the political left, this church does not truly know the one who sent Jesus. Now let me come to the other side, because what, the, what, the, what this church says at times of us is that we have become aligned with the political right. So let me just point this out. For ourselves, even though, and I'm just going to say we vote for the political right, even though we vote for the political right, and that's kind of general. I didn't say Republicans. I, I, I said the political right, whatever that is. I'm using words that I know. Let me say this. Even though we vote for the political right, we must never let the political right shape our theology. Or the gospel that we preach so, for example, when I look at the sign and, and it says, God, guns, and Trump, that sign is a desecration of God's name. It's a desecration of God's name. It is contrary to the true and pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't mean that as a commentary on Trump. I, I'm not commentating on Trump. I'm just saying that that sign is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we must never see the political right as a missional arm of the church, even though I believe that as Christians, if you vote, if you vote politically left, um, um, you're in great danger. This is what I meant last week when I made a distinction between being politically conservative as a professing Christian, and being a true Christian. Because honestly, I think there's a lot of Christians who can feel like, I'm politically conservative and I profess to be a Christian. I profess to be a Christian, but yet my Christian identity is bound up in being politically conservative. That's, that's false. That's wrong. That, you might not be a Christian. Right. So we have to see that that, that we have our gospel, we have our Christianity, and, and yet certainly as, as those who would vote politically right, because I believe that we're bound and obligated to, 
based on my understanding of, of the scriptures, that does not mean that I vote that way and I have those political convictions that I'm, a, that I'm truly a Christian, a fruit-bearing Christian. Now, on the other hand, what we see in terms of persecution is that the persecution is going to come from the church that is essentially in bed with the political left. And I'm sorry for that analogy, but maybe I'm not, but it seems like it's really what's happening. So more and more, we're facing the reality that to be hated and persecuted by the political left will be to be hated and persecuted by the professing church. By those who sincerely claim to be zealous and earnest Christians. And what are we going to do when that happens? Rather than be surprised and tempted then to doubt our faith, or suppose the gospel might be something other than what the Bible says it is. Maybe I am too narrow-minded. Maybe I am too, too harsh. And, and, and there's always a, a place for heart-searching to make sure that we, we know what biblical compassion is. Right? And we know that we're not, we're not being self-righteous. I got, I'm going to heaven because I'm who I am, and you're not. There's always a place to be searching our hearts. But rather than be surprised and doubt our faith, suppose the gospel might be something other than what the Bible says it is, we must see that the cover being used by, yes, our opponents, is the very thing that exposes and accuses them and will ultimately condemn them apart from repentance. Therefore, we come back to what we saw earlier. Therefore, it is not our job to accuse We may at times need to expose, to speak the truth, to say those things, but it is not our job to be the accusers. It is simply our job to proclaim and stand strong for the true gospel. That's our job. Therefore, even as we proclaim and stand strong for the true gospel, we can love and forgive those who hate and persecute us, even when those people are the Christians claiming to love and serve God. Now, I've been drawing an application from this passage for us, but of course, the situation of those disciples was unique in history. You know, they're dealing with Jews who have been serving God all their life, but now prove they weren't really, truly, because they reject his Messiah when he comes. They reject Jesus. So Jesus continues in no uncertain terms in verse 23. He who hates me hates my father also. He says, you're saying you love God but hate me. You you can't say that. It doesn't matter how much of the scriptures the Jews have memorized. Sometimes we are swept away by sincerity. Brothers and sisters, we're swept away by sincerity. By, by, a, by, an, by um, a morally exemplary life. By zeal. We're swept away by zeal. These Jews had all of that. They memorized the scriptures. 
How many hours did they spend studying and teaching the scriptures? How much of their money did they contribute to the temple treasury? How much time did they spend praying? And yet, the stubborn, inescapable fact of the matter was this. If they hate Jesus, then they must also hate and reject the God they claim to be loving and serving. The God who is Jesus' own Father. So we can say, well, it sure looks like you love God, right? I see all sorts of evidence that you love God, but there's this stubborn fact that you hate Jesus. You know what that means? You hate God. Now, we'll see that the same thing can happen in terms of people saying, I love Jesus. And yet the stubborn fact will remain. They hate Jesus. We, we come to see, I want to ask, how can Jesus be so absolute about this? He says in verse 24, If I had not done, past tense, a historical fact, among them, the Jews, the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. We know what he's saying now. But now, they have both seen and hated me, and, therefore, they have hated my father as well. So I want to just briefly review, because this is, except for one, this is the last reference Jesus makes to the works that he performed. In verse 21, Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them. Now he says, if I had not done among them the works. Talking, doing. So in John's gospel, works, what are works? You think about it maybe with me, maybe you know now. What are works in John's gospel? Well, they're your whole life. Your whole life is made up of your works. Right? So John chapter 3. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his works will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his works may be manifested as having been wrought in God. What are your works? They're your life. John 9.4. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as his day. Night is coming when no one can work. So it's all that Jesus was doing. So on the one hand, it's the overall activity of Jesus' life. But on the other hand, works also seems to refer in John to his miracles. And that's where we get kind of confused. Like works is everything. And then, oh, works is those miracles that Jesus did. So when the Jews were persecuting Jesus for miraculously healing a lame man on the Sabbath, And so working on the Sabbath, Jesus answered, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. So the miracles Jesus did were just part of his work. No big deal. Part of his work. And so the teaching of Jesus could be included with his miracles. Jesus taught, and he performed miracles under the category of his works. So John 14.10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Words, works. And so in the end, the words and the deeds of Jesus, talking and doing, the preaching and his miracles, are all part of that one great singular work. Right? The work that the Father sent Jesus, our Savior, to accomplish. And what work is that? The work of redemption, right? And so the next and last time, we only have one more time, we'll see this word in John. 
And it's the last time. It's in John 17. Jesus prays, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. The work was made up of the sum total of his works. And so what are these works, brothers and sisters? What are they? What are these works Jesus did among the Jews that no one else did? They're this. They're the sum total of all that Jesus ever said, all that Jesus ever did in revealing God to us and accomplishing our redemption. There is whole life. Therefore, and I think I just put this in your handout, inasmuch as these works are especially his signs and his wonders that he performed, they are, as one commentator says, proofs, not just giving evidence of his supernatural ability, but above all, because Jesus has demonstrated in them the saving word of God that has become incarnate in him. When Jesus performed his miracles, he was revealing the saving word of God incarnate in him and who he was, the redemption that God had sent into the world. So Jesus can say over and over again, this is what he says to the Jews, the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. John 10, the works that I do, In my Father's name, preaching, teaching, miracles, wonders, these testify of me. Later in John 10, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Chapter 14, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So now, coming back, can we see now how Jesus can say so absolutely, listen to these words and see if they sound right. He who hates me hates my Father also. You can't claim to love God and hate me, Jesus says. It's impossible. The explanation is in what Jesus says next. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen, because I did these works among them, they have seen and hated me, and therefore my Father as well. Don't be surprised or confused, Jesus says, when you're persecuted by people who claim to know God and love him. Because their hatred and rejection of Jesus proves decisively that they in fact hate God and always have. Now Jesus could say that to the Jews because he actually did among them the works which no one else did. right? So the accountability of that first century generation of Jews is greater than any other. Oh, they have the greatest accountability in the history of all the world ever. But brothers and sisters, Jesus can say this of everyone, not just to the Jews in the first century. He can say this at some level of everyone who's ever been confronted in the scriptures with the works of Jesus, with his preaching and his miracles and his sufferings and his death 
and his burial and his resurrection, everyone who's been confronted with the works of Jesus in the scriptures and who still rejects him. Because it's still true today that to reject Jesus is to hate him. And so also it is to reject and hate God, his father. So I say it, we have to say it again that we sit here every week and we're confronted as we go through this gospel of John with the works of Jesus. We're confronted with his teachings. We're confronted with his works, his miracles, his deeds, his suffering. We're going to come to his death and his burial and his resurrection very soon now. It's the night before, right? And if we do not receive this Jesus, we're guilty only of hating him and hating his father with him. May that not be true of a single soul here. Today, there are many who claim to love Jesus. And, you know, as I say these things, I, 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 there's a, we always need to examine my, our own hearts. Do I truly love Jesus or I just profess to? But having said that, today there are many who claim to love Jesus and who even sincerely believe that they do love Jesus, but who only love the Jesus they've created in their own minds. And that's usually, how do we create our own Jesus? How do we do that? We do it by reading the Bible. That's how we do it. How do we create our own Jesus by reading the Bible? By reading the Bible selectively. By reading portions of the Bible, but not the whole. Or, by reading the whole Bible, but reading it through a culturally conditioned reading. So we come to the Bible through the lens of our modern cultural climate, which usually, which which is reading it out of context which usually assumes a reading of the scriptures that rejects the inspiration and the infallibility of scripture. So a lot of churches today that are going down this, this road have, have denied or are denying, practically speaking, the fact that the scriptures are the inspired, infallible word of God from beginning to end in every word, jot and tittle. And as soon as we've done that, brothers and sisters, we become the authority. That's what we've become. And so there are many deeply religious people, sincere, pleasant people to be around, morally exemplary lives, who claim to love Jesus, but who actually hate him. That feels completely impossible. But it's true and who therefore hate his father too. Now, it's not for us to go around pointing fingers at who hates him and who doesn't. That's not, our, that's not our place. But what Jesus is warning us of is so that when you are persecuted by those people, don't fall away and abandon the true gospel. Because as unexpected and unwelcome as these things might have been to the disciples, Jesus goes on to assure them, but this happened to fulfill or to fill up the word that is written in their own law. They hated me without cause. 
that's not it. We've, by now we should know that prophecies in the Old Testament are not just, one day they will hate Jesus, and then it happened. Right? No, this was not a direct prophecy. This was a lament of David in the Psalms, and he was talking about himself. And all the godly in Israel used his words to talk about themselves. So we read in Psalm 35, Without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me, nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. That's David. That's, that's godly people throughout all the centuries of history praying those words. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. Princes persecute me without cause. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. So when Jesus says that this prayer of David and of all sorts of godly people before him is fulfilled in the Jews' hatred of him, what he's helping his disciples to see is that rather than being a disaster, rather than being some sign of failure that they might have got the gospel wrong, that they might have not have recognized the Messiah rightly, the Jews' hatred of Jesus and of them is only more proof of the truthfulness of his word. The Jews' hatred of him is only the eschatological culmination. We've arrived at the ultimate hatred now. It's been building, building, building for hundreds of years until now it's directed against the Messiah himself and his disciples. And therefore this hatred of Jesus is only further proof that he is who he says he is. Brothers and sisters, when those who claim to love God and even to love Jesus insult us, and persecute us and falsely say all kinds of evil against us because of Jesus, we can rejoice and be glad. Because we know that in the same way, they persecuted the prophets and the apostles who were before us, and because we know they've hated Jesus, our Savior, first of all. But now Jesus returns again to the disciples' call to bear fruit in the world. And I love this. You know, we've been on this teeter-totter. For us, it's a teeter-totter. Okay? Oh, the world hates us. Let's go into our little bubble and hide and, and wait it out until Jesus comes. Or, or, oh, go out and bear fruit. Oh, the world must going to be welcoming and loving us. And no, Jesus says, the world's going to hate you, but I'm sending you into the world to bear fruit. The world's going to kill you, but I'm sending you into the world to bear fruit that lasts eternally. So Jesus comes back to that in verses 26 to 27. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will bear witness also. Because you, not not us here, but he's talking to these disciples, have been with me from the beginning. So we're going to come back to these verses. Jesus unpacks them later in John 16, but for right now, we'll only say this. The disciples are not going to be alone in their witness. Here they are in the world, hates them, persecutes them, but they're not going to be alone in their witness. The witness of the Spirit, who advocates for them, who Jesus himself says, I will send to you from the Father. 
He will accompany, his witness will accompany their witness. And so what can the disciples do? They can leave the fruit of their witness in a hostile world to the work of the Spirit. And so can we. Not only will the Spirit bear witness to the world, which we'll see that in John 16, 8 to 11, but he will bear witness to the disciples who have been with Jesus from the beginning. We'll see that in verses 12 to 15 next next couple of weeks. So, so when, the, when the Spirit bears witness to the world, I know that it's not on me to convert the world, right? I can go and bear witness and then leave the fruits to the work of the Spirit. When the, witness, when the Spirit bears witness to the apostles, not so much to us, but to the apostles in particular, those disciples can be absolutely certain of the truthfulness of their testimony. Okay? They're going to be met with persecution, they're going to be met with failure, but yet they're not a failure. They didn't get it wrong because the Spirit testifies to them that this is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't compromise it. Don't let it go. Don't doubt whether you got it right. This is it. Even when you're persecuted by those who claim to love and serve the God that you are proclaiming. And so we can also be absolutely certain insofar as our witness is truly faithful to the testimony of the apostles recorded for us in Scripture. We ought not to take it for granted that the gospel we preach is, of course, the right one because it's the gospel. We need to make sure it's the gospel according to the apostles and Jesus Christ in Scripture. So having encouraged his disciples with this reminder of the Holy Spirit that they're to go and bear fruit, Jesus comes back again to being persecuted. These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. So brothers and sisters, if, we, if we're not sure if these verses really have too much application to us, or if we really need to take them too much to heart, now is when we find out we better. Because Jesus says, I've spoken these things to you so that you be kept from stumbling. To stumble here is to stumble and to fall away and to abandon the faith that we confess. They will put you out of the synagogue. But indeed, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he's offering service to God. When that happens, right? When those things happen, you're going to be tempted at times to fall away, to abandon the faith, to give it up, to to question everything you've ever believed and known. But Jesus says, these things they will do because... They did not know the Father or me. Remember that. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Two things here. First, do you see in these verses how Jesus cared for his disciples? And so too how he cares for us. Jesus is about to leave his disciples and he knows what's in store for them. He knows what's ahead. And so he tells them and he says, these things I've told to you so that when their hour comes, you remember I said this to you. I've spoken these things to you so that you'll be kept from stumbling. You see his care for his disciples. And we see too how we ought to be always devoting ourselves to Jesus' words so that we too might be kept from stumbling 
and falling away. If we don't devote ourselves to Jesus' words, we open ourselves up to the ultimate of failures. Jesus, 12 times in John's Gospel, we've seen this language of our. And if you've been with us through this whole series of John, you remember that. Our is a famous word in John. And this language of our has pointed us always to this redemptive moment in time when redemption comes to its climax, when, when it's all finished and the glorification of Jesus. So we read in John 5, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. John 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. As numerous other references that are the same kind of thing. So far in John, the language of a coming hour is always, always exclusively a language of victory and salvation that comes to us even through suffering and death. So when Jesus says now, this really takes us off guard if we've been reading John carefully. He says now, an hour is coming and we almost expect the redemptive climax of the world. But it's an hour is coming for everyone who kills you. To think he's offering service to God. And these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes... You may remember I told you of them. When we read those words, how can we not hear in them the assurance of our own final victory and salvation that comes even through what? Even through suffering and through death. Because the hour for Jesus was the hour of his glorification in and through his suffering and his death. Therefore, the hour of our persecution and suffering and death for the sake of Christ's name is at the same time the hour of our victory and salvation. Are we really good with that? Do we embrace that? Do we submit ourselves to the word of God and love that word? As John will write in Revelation of all the saints, And they overcame him, victory, over the devil. Because of the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life, even when faced with death. May we then be among those who do not love our lives, even when faced with death or anything less than death. For the sake of his name. Dear Heavenly Father. Lord we pray that you would. Enable us. To grasp and comprehend. Not just the facts. Here. But the power of the truth. Lord we thank you for our savior Jesus. And for his care for his flock. For his disciples. Lord we pray that we would that we would be empowered to love our enemies, to, pers- to, to pray for those who would persecute us, to not, to not feel at our need to be the accusers. And yet, 
when we are hated or persecuted, even by those who would claim to love Jesus or to love the Father, Lord, would you enable us to stand strong, to not question the gospel that we have confessed and believed, the gospel that that the scriptures have revealed to us, the gospel of, of sin and guilt, of no righteousness of our own, of our having fallen short of your law, and yet your provision of a righteousness that is free to sinners through faith in Jesus. Lord, we pray that we embrace that gospel more and more and more. We pray that you enable us to have wisdom for the living of these times. We thank you most of all that you did not call us to be hated first of all by the world. But it was our own Savior, Jesus Christ, who has been hated and will always be hated, first of all. And we thank you, Lord, that though we were among those who hated him, you have called us out to be among those who love him. And who therefore love one another. And thank you that through his sufferings, at the hands of those who hated him, even through those very sufferings. He worked out our redemption. So as we come to this table, to the Lord's Supper, Lord, may we be strengthened not only in our faith in the gospel, but also be strengthened to be among those willing to suffer, even death, for the sake of his name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.